I love this series because it, it really asks, if, if you're new, for the last five or six weeks, we've been in a series called Explore God, where we've been asking, um, I think, really difficult questions. Uh, I think really potentially controversial questions about, about faith, about God, and about life, about how those, all those things kind of uh, come together. And today we're going to talk about uh, the reliability of the Bible. And I think the real question is, 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 is the Bible authoritative? What kind of authority do, does the Bible have? And uh, if you'll turn with me, Genesis 1-1. If you don't know that, that's going to be the first verse in your Bible, Genesis 1-1. You've got an outline in your folders. Please, you can pull those out and that'll help uh, you and really me uh, go through this. But I think one of the main things, so as we go to Genesis 1-1 is that you may not know this, but the Bible uh, has sold over 2 billion copies. That's pretty incredible because the closest book behind it in book sales is about 200 million. And so clearly there's something special about this book. Clearly there's something that that God has put together that is, is incredibly unique. And here's what I think the potential uh, tr- tragedy could be is that we could go through and we could live through church and we could show up here and, and kind of go through life and never know why the Bible is central and never know why, why, why is it really the book? Why, what, what has God done special in this book? And maybe bigger than that is what does it need to do in my life? What is the, the purpose uh, that the Bible has in my life? And so I think the great place to start is just Genesis 1. And Genesis 1.1 says this. I just want to look at the first four words. It says, in the beginning, God. That's it. That's how this book starts. In the beginning, God. Now, if you look past Genesis 1.1 and you go back, there's not information about God. Okay, it's not, okay. I'm God. I've been working on this book for a few thousand years. Um, hey, I'm God. I'm, I've never not been. Uh, I'm here. I've been here from the beginning. I'll be there to the end. I mean, he doesn't, there's no qualifications. God doesn't uh, write a little preface about himself and, and let us know more about him. It just says, in the beginning, God. The other thing I noticed about this is that, you know, like when people typically write books, what do they have others do, right? They like write endorsements, right? So they write about them. They say things about them or this book is forwarded by, okay? None of God's friends showed up, okay? There's no endorsements about him. There's no things that talk about why you should read it. Somebody said, hey, you should read this. There's nothing like that. And so in that sense, compared to really any other book, um, it's different. But here's what I like about the beginning, it just says, in the beginning, God. But there's so much about this that is about God posturing himself, okay? And I love that God does not present a defensive posture about himself. And I think so many times, sometimes as Christians, we feel this need to defend God or to defend the Bible. And I think that's a mistake, And so today, just from the beginning, I want to say, I'm not here to defend the Bible, okay? I don't need to defend God, and I don't need to defend the Bible, okay? And and here's why. I think I I really agree with what Billy Graham said about the Bible. And uh, this is what he said. The Bible is like a lion. Just turn it loose, and it will defend itself. 
Okay? And so we just... The Bible is going to do what it's going to do. And, and God's Word is going to do what it's going to do. And what I'm more interested in about the Bible personally, and I hope that we get today, is what it's capable of doing in my life. What the Bible is capable of doing in your life. The things that God wants to do in your life. And that the fact that if we do it and we practice it, that it works. The Bible makes sense. It works when we begin to do it. So here's what I want to do. I want to start with purpose. Okay? Because I, I think it's important that we know what is the purpose of the Bible? Why, is, why, does, why does it exist for the church, for, for the world? Why do, why do we have it? And I think the best way to do that is, what does the Bible say about itself? What does it say about itself? And so if you can go to 2 Timothy, this is in the uh, New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17 talks about the uses and the purpose of Scripture and why that we have it and what, we, what are we doing with it. Uh, this book was written to a young pastor named Timothy. And uh, it was written by Paul to Timothy. And he was telling him, hey, this is talking to him about the church and structure and elders and all these things that go on in the church. But he didn't get too far in where he began to talk about, here's what, here's what the Bible is about. And so, so he writes this to this young pastor, Timothy, and he says this to him, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed, or, or, or all scripture is inspired by God. And, and here are the uses. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, okay, or that rebuking, you're like, dude, that doesn't sound good. But what that means is it's, it confronts. The Bible confronts, it does. It's going to confront us where we are in our lives, okay? But here's the cool thing about the Bible. We're, the Bible is useful for teaching for confronting and correcting. So the Bible never says, confronts us about something, and then that's it. Then the Bible corrects, it it begins to tell us, okay, yeah, I'm confronting you on something, but then here's how I really want you to live, okay? So it's it's a both-and kind of deal going on here. So it's teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Those are the uses of Scripture. That's how we should use it. So we're not here to manipulate or... Or try to make people do certain things. That's what the Bible does. And verse 17 is, So the, the man or the person of God may be thoroughly equipped, okay, for every good work. There's a lot there. There's a, there's a whole lot there. So there's these uses. And then there's this, this, this word, this uh, kind of word picture that this, this gives us in kind of the root meaning of, of what's going on here. Of that the Bible is, is there to thoroughly equip us for what? Every good work. So what the Bible, these uses of teaching and, and confronting and correcting and training want to get us to the place where God perfectly and thoroughly fits us to do something. What this thoroughly uh, uh, equipped or whatever, what it is is it's talking about being perfectly fitted for something. So the Bible, God is going to use the Bible to fit us, to prepare us to do something, to do these good works. And the picture of it is like like a ball and socket joint in your body. That's what it's like. It's that fitting. 
that perfect fitting. If your ball, a ball socket joint in your body ever gets out of whack, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Things are not going to be good. It's going to be painful. And so what this is talking about is that God perfectly has this perfectly fit plan, this tailored plan for you that he wants you to do. And the way he gets you to that place is he allows the Bible to have its work in your life so that when those things happen, that you're ready for that. And so uh, I I couldn't help but think about this. I went to uh, South Korea about 10 years ago. And uh, in in Seoul, uh, South Korea, really, really cool city. Um, Obviously, you know, very unique place. Uh, But one of the things, if you do ever go to to Korea or, you know, Seoul area that I would recommend you do is get a tailor-made suit if you're a man, okay? If you're a woman, probably not so much. Um, but get, get a suit. If you ever have to wear a suit, you want one that's, that fits you right. And so there, so anything you buy like at Men's Warehouse, you know, wherever you would go to buy a suit here in America, you get for the same price, you get one there, but it's tailor-fitted for you. It's it's made for you, okay? And so, but there's a process to, and I'd never done that before, okay? I don't really wear suits a lot, but the guy I was with was like, hey, you just need to do this because, you know, every once in a while you got to do a wedding or something like that. You need to wear a suit, dude. And so I was like, okay, whatever. So I went and got this suit, and, I, and it was an interesting process of being fitted. So you show up, guy gets this, and begins just to measure you all over, lengths, inseam, outseam, waist, all this stuff. And so I was like, okay, cool. And, uh, a little bit personal on the measuring. And then, so did that step and then showed up like two days later or so. And I walked in, I wasn't quite ready for this, but the suit that I had, it, something was wrong with it because it was like pinned together. Uh, it looked terrible. Um, and what they want you to do. And so I walked in, I was like, dude, there's something wrong with this thing. Cause it wasn't right. Because I thought I was going to show up and it was going to be done. It was going to be ready, but it wasn't. It just had pins all the way down all the seams and it was just like, I walked out and I was with my friends like, dude, what, what's going on here? Why is it, this is not the final product here? And he goes, no, dude, you put that on. They just want to make sure everything's right. And then you're going to come back and it's going to be perfect. I'm like, okay, cool. So I went back a couple of days later and it was all done, all pretty looking, put it on. And it was what it was. It was a tailor made suit, fitted me perfectly. And I thought about that because in the same way, God uses the Bible in a very personal way for each one of us. Because what he wants to do and the way he wants to use it in our lives is to, he has a tailor-fitted, tailor-made plan for your life. And the way he, do, way he uses that is he uses the Bible to prepare us and to move us into these places of using our gifts and, and all of these things in our lives. And so... That's why as a church, we value scripture. That's why as a church, we move through the books of of the Bible mostly. Like, so next month, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. We're going to be going kind of line by line, verse by verse, through uh, the four chapters of Jonah. Because we believe that God has a, a specific message for each one of us in here. And a specific thing that he wants us to apply and, and to do to do in our lives. Now... I think one of the things about the Bible that is critical is that we come to it with faith. We have to come. We're a people of we're people of faith. And so it requires us to come to it with faith. At the same time, 
I don't think we just check our brains at the door or it's this blind leap of faith or, or whatever, but that there are some things that we know about the Bible that we can say that book is reliable. This book is historically authoritative. There are things about it that, that are, in all of it, that are completely true. And so I, I, I want to just talk about like two or three things that I would say, here's why I would say, uh, if, here's what I would say, the reason why the Bible is reliable. Here's the things why I would say, here's why the Bible is authoritative. And the first one is this. If you have your outlines, you can, there, it's right there. First blank is this. It is matchless. The Bible is incredibly unique. There is no, there's no other book uh, like Scripture. Uh, the way it is structured, the way it is, is put together is amazing. So the, the word Bible means books. And so some say, well, this is one book. That's true. But really the Bible is, is, is 66 books, 66 different books. Okay? Now here's the really unique thing. If, we'll just kind of read this. And your outline here, it says this, the Bible was written over 1,500 years, okay? So that's something there. So the Bible was not written in one generation. It wasn't written, you know, by one person, okay? So it was over a 1,500-year period by 40 different authors in three languages on three continents. But here's the amazing thing. It tells one story about a redeeming God. That's incredible. Because there's no other book that is, has been formulated over 1,500 years by 40 people on three different continents, three different languages, telling one story. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty incredible. So you've got Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible in about 1,400 uh, B.C., all the way to, to John writing Revelation in about 90 A.D. And in between those two guys, you've got 38 other people, three continents, different languages, different culture, all saying the same thing. <laughs> all saying that the same story. So, so in the, the even kind of really cool thing about that is, is these 40 people, m- most of them didn't really know each other. They're from different continents, different cities. They're from Africa or Asia or Europe. So you're talking massive, different cultural differences. There's, ma- there's way cultural difference between Europe and Africa or Europe and Asia. Or all of those are vastly different. And the people that wrote the Bible were kings, were prisoners, were pro- some of them were prophets. Some of them were super wealthy, like Solomon, who had, like, in his day had more money than anybody. And then some of them were, like, super poor. Some of them had, had nothing. Some of them were tax collectors. Some of these people were, were fishermen. Some of these people were shepherds, which would qualify in the poor department. Okay? So you had all these different walks of life, these 40 different people that wrote it in these different languages and God put it all together, and it's all connected, and it's all saying the same thing. That's phenomenal. 
That's why the Bible is matchless. The second thing is this, and this is really, really simple, uh, but I think equally as amazing. And the second thing is prophecy. Prophecy. So, okay, from the day that Jesus was born to the day he was uh, uh, put on the cross and resurrected, in his one single life, in that time span, there were more than 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in his life. Just one person. Now, all of those prophecies that were written about him were written at least 400 years before he was ever born. Okay, now some really smart guy, and I don't know his name. I just heard this from somebody else, so I guarantee you it's out there, though. But this is pretty amazing. There's this one guy who uh, did some research and kind of did some odds of what one person, the fact that these prophecies would happen in somebody's life. Uh, but here's the deal. The prob- probability that eight prophecies would happen with one person's life, where these prophecies were written 400, person, 400 years before that person was even born, Okay, here's the chance, here's the probability that that would actually happen, considering all the things that uh, go on in our world. The probability is this, 1 times 10 to the 17th is the probability that, that even eight prophecies would happen to one person. Okay, that is this number. It is 1 in 100 quadrillion. It's like our debt, our national debt. It's, it's like that. Okay? Because we don't understand that. Like, what? We have that much debt? Okay, anyway, yeah, it's nuts. Okay, and so, but that's how crazy it would be for that to happen. Yet in Jesus' life, I mean, do you know anybody today that one prophecy was told about them 400 years ago that's happening right now? <laughs> I don't know anybody. But Jesus Christ, Christ walks in this Earth and you got four hundred prophecy or three hundred prophecies that happened about his life that were written four hundred years before he even was here. So uh, and we can read that. That's in, we can pick up this book and read it. We can see it. We can see Old Testament. We can see the fulfillment happening in the New Testament. Amazing. The third thing is this archaeology. Um, archaeology is a big deal. I'll read. Let me just read this definition of archaeology. So we're all on the same page here. Archaeology is a study because everybody thinks just archaeology is like somebody going out and digging a hole in the ground. We're like, hey, cool, look at that. And uh, so uh, archaeology is a study of human activity in the past, primarily through the recovery and analysis of material, culture, and environmental data that they have left behind, which includes artifacts, architecture, uh, biofacts, and cultural landscapes. You know, if you're an architect uh, in archaeology, what you're looking for, if you want to find out what people were doing in their day, you want to find out where the city dump was. Okay? So if you want to find out where the TDS is, back in that day. Because what people threw away was all put together, and then you could dig down and find out, okay, this, is, this was their money, this was their notes, this is their stuff, this was their, you would find all their stuff in the, in the, in the city dump. So a lot of people, that's that's where they go. Now, I want to give you a couple examples um, out of uh, ones in Luke. And I just want to read this. So 
Luke, the guy that wrote Luke, Dr. Luke, he was a, was a doctor, just a really sharp guy. And, and this is the way he started the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and, and I really, uh, I, I think this is really cool. So one thing, let me just read verse, verse 1, Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What he's saying is, listen, I have taken the time to sit down and to get with people and to put these things together so that you can trust it. You can trust this. You can, you can know that what I'm writing is correct, that it is reliable, that there is authority to us, what I'm doing. And so you, when you read Luke, especially uh, his accounts of Mary and Joseph and the beginning of Jesus coming um, and, and John the Baptist coming and, and Elizabeth and, and Zechariah, all these people kind of coming together. There's incredible uh, uh, historical value here. And so there was a guy named William Ramsey who was very critical of the Bible. And he read this, this Luke guy. He said, oh, man, you know, from an archaeology kind of uh, mindset, he read this, this first part. And he was like, hey, I, I want to I study this Luke. I want to find out if, if what he was saying was real and if these things, things really happened. And so as an archaeologist, you look at this thing. Maybe some of the questions that that William uh, Ramsey was asking would be, for example, Mary and Joseph, why did they go to Bethlehem? Because that's where they were from. They wanted to make sure that they got on the tax rolls from where they were from. So they moved to Bethlehem. So what, what would you want to do? Hey, in that day, did Caesar call people to go to their hometowns? And you would go find that out. And so that's what he did. He went and found that out. Indeed, yeah, that's what happened. Hey, they talk about this Pontius Pilate guy in the very end that, that ultimately sent Jesus to the cross. Was this guy around? Was he really in Jerusalem during that time? Sure enough, yeah, he was there. He went and found those, all these facts out, all these things that kind of we can just take for granted. We can read the Bible and go, yeah, of course that happened. But he went and like, okay, I want to know. I want to see if we can find this out. And here's what William Ramsey said about Luke. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the great, very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. What he is saying, it, what he is saying is that the Bible is historically accurate. These are real people in real times doing real things that we can read about, that we can rely on, that we can trust. There's one other one that I, I thought was really unique in the Old Testament. In Joshua 6, verse 20, it talks about, you don't have to go there, but it talks about uh, the walls of Jericho coming down. 
Now, here's the difference. So if you went and uh, this happened a lot. So cities were, were protected and fortified they were by walls. So they had these big walls up around them. And it would protect them from enemies and all this kind of stuff. It would allow them to have control of who comes in and out of the, of the, of the city gates. And, and so they put guards there and make sure that the enemies don't get in and all this kind of stuff. And so that happened. And, but, but sometimes a, 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 an army bigger than them would come and would overtake a city. And so what that would look like is by force, they would come and push these walls over. Knock the walls over. So the walls would fall into the city. Okay? And then they would go into the city and, and, and overtake the city. Now, what was unique about the walls of Jericho was they did not fall inward. But what happened is when they found Jericho and they began to, to do an archaeological dig on this city, what happened was is they found that the walls fell outward. Why? Because it says that God, God took those walls down. God did that. And so there's this authority to Scripture where they can go and say, yeah, all the other walls we've ever looked up, yeah, they all fell inward. But this one, Jericho, all, it fell out the other way. It's because God did that. And, and we can see that in Joshua 6. And so I think archaeological study is so important because the more people do it and the more people dig and study all this stuff, the more credibility that it gives the Bible. And it shows us that, that it's true. Uh, last today, I want to look at a couple scriptures and just want to make the statement that, that the Bible is first. It's preeminent. It, it is the first thing. And uh, if you'll go to Psalm 138, Psalm's in the middle uh, of your Bible. But Psalms 138 says something really unique about God's Word uh, and, and what David is saying here. But it says this, a Psalm of David. So this is Psalm 1, uh, 38, 1 through 2. A Psalm of David. I will give you thanks with all my heart. And I will sing praises to you before the gods. And I will bow down towards your holy temple. And I will give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. I just want to stop right there. That's, that's some serious statement right there. That's, that's, that's worship. David's saying, hey, listen, God, I'm giving thanks to you, and I just want you to know, here's why I sing to you, here's why I bow down to you, here's why I praise you, God, this is why I do this, here's why I worship you for your loving kindness, here's why I bow down to you, because you are truthful, here's why I do it. And he tells us why he does it in verse, in verse, uh, the rest of this verse. For you are because you have magnified your word according to or above all your name. This is what he's saying. The reason that I worship you, 
The reason I worship you, God, the reason I bow down to you, the reason I do that is because your word is above your name. You know, we talk about, I want to have a good name. You know, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that says, a good name is better than riches. How do you get a good name, though? How do you get a good name? Anybody? Huh? Speak your truth. See, the only way God's name is good, the reason his word is above his name, is because his word is good. You see, if my, if, if my word's not good, my name's not good. That's why it's so, that's why the Bible is so central, see? Because if it's not good, God's name's not good. It's not truth. Why would I, why would I bow down? David's saying, the reason I bow down to you, God, the reason I worship you, the reason I praise you, the reason I'm thankful for you is because your word is good. Your word is good. And you, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. When you say it's already done, if, if, you're gonna, if you said it's going to happen, I can count on it. And so time and time again, we can see and watch scripture about God doing his word. He says, I'm going to do this, and he does it. I mean, in the life of Jesus alone, 300 prophecies, and he did them all. He fulfilled them all, all of those. That's God's word. You know, his, his signature is enough. That's why credit cards are interesting. What's a credit card? It's a signature loan. No collateral. I get a loan for my house, they got collateral. I don't make the payment, they come get my house. I buy a car, I get a loan, they come take my car. But if I lay down a piece of plastic and I pay for something, I just sign it. There's no collateral. They're not going to come get my flat screen, <laughs> right? What God is saying is, listen, my signature is good. I've never not paid. There is no collateral. Listen, God has made a full payment in his son, Jesus Christ, for you. There's no collateral. It's been paid in full to redeem you, to make you right. And the thing that, Ice is the whole thing is God signed it. This is my work. I did this. This is my payment for you so that you can be right and so that I can redeem you and make you right. All right, I just want to close with this one last verse today about God's word. And uh, it's found in Hebrews uh, 4, verse 12. Hebrews is towards the end of the Bible. It says this. For the word of God is is living. So, why is that important? See, the word of God is is living. Okay, so if typically, uh, maybe 100%, if something is living, then it has the, the chance and the ability to create more life. Think about that. Anything that's alive today has the ability to create more life. So the Bible is living. And so the Bible wants to create more life. It wants to create life. Okay, so the word of God is living. And then it says the word of God is living and active. 
Okay, so things that are active have the ability to create more activity, right? Don't look at me confused. If you have kids, they are active and they cause motion in your house, which causes more motion and activity than maybe you even want, right? So things that are living and and are active, they create more of that, okay? And so the Bible's living and it's active, And then it says that the Bible is sharper. Have you ever met somebody that is living and active, but they're not very sharp? If you didn't laugh, it might be you. But anyway, it could be you. But it says that the Bible is living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And here's what it does. It penetrates... Even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So it's living and it's active and it's sharp. And what the Bible does, see, in our lives is it goes below the surface, see. It cuts. It does surgery, if you will. There's some things that happen in us. It makes us different. So sometimes we, we begin to read the Bible, begin to do what it says, and all of a sudden we kind of learn, man, something's changed. Something's changed. I've activated my faith in what God has said in this word, and my life is different. Why? Because God is penetrating. God is living. His word is active, and it's sharp. And when it, when it comes alive in us, when it moves in us, see, things begin to change in, in our lives, it exposes who God is. The Bible exposes who we really are. And then it exposes what God really wants for us. It's this whole perfectly fitted kind of thing. All right, so I like how we started this. And that's what I kind of want to land today, is that there's this natural, general revelation about God. We talked about this like five or six weeks ago, about God existing, that there is this creation that he's given us. It's natural revelation. God's revealed himself uh, to us through creation. Now, that's awesome, and and we need that. And and it's one of the ways we know uh, about the existence of God. And so there's this natural revelation. What the Bible is, is it's this spiritual, it's a revelation from him, see. It's a personal revelation from him about him and about what he has for your life. So it's not just another book or, or information or whatever. It's God's revelation. It's his, if you will, his, his love letter to us to tell us what he's about, what he's like, and the plan that he has for each one of us. That's what the Bible is about. That's what it, it, it is, and that's what God wants to do in it. And so I kind of like how that... We, we're getting close to the end of this and we're talking about the reliability of Scripture. Because this is how God communicates with us. This is how God tells us about Him. About what He's like. About His ways. About His heart for your city. About His heart for the poor. About his heart for your kids, about his heart for your wife, about his heart for your husband, 
about his heart for how you should do your job. So then all of a sudden, God's about all the things he's put us in. And I can take what the Bible says and I can take God's heart and I can put it right there and invite the kingdom of God, see, to be involved in it. Because why? Because the Bible is living and active. It's sharp. It wants to change things. Because the Bible is God's word. And he's never not done what he said he's going to (laughs) do. He's never not done what he said he's going to do. And it's above his name. And that's why we worship him. Because he always does what he says he can do. This book, it's matchless. There's nothing like it. And there's nothing like the God that it talks about. And that's why we worship him.